The launch of Shimano R9200 series Durace and R8100 series Ultegra is not simply an effort to make one-time bike setup easier or to unveil new technology for the sake of creating buzz. Instead, it represents a holistic approach that is 100% performance-focused. Thousands of engineering decisions and refinements over the course of several years were made with the singular aim of making you faster. This is the science of speed, Shimano's design philosophy for its latest road groups. It is comprised of five elements, a new DI2 platform, a refined interface, the addition of Hyperglide Plus, a category redefining brake system, and a collection of new wheels. The result is a clean wireless cockpit, faster shifting, enhanced brake control, and quicker, more stable wheels. Top that with an easy to use E2 Project smartphone app, and connecting you with your bike and enjoying the ride has never been better. This is the science of speed, and it's what sets Shimano apart. Hello and welcome to the Vela News Podcast. We have a great show for you today. We're speaking with our own Bijou Thomas, now the resident chef at Outside. You may know Bijou from his series of cooking books with Dr. Alan Lim, the Feed Zone series. Bijou has cooked for many writers and many teams over the years, from Lance Armstrong to Peter Sagan. He's cooked in the fanciest hotels. He's cooked in many parking lots. Uh, the man is a hustler who gets it done. He's going to speak to us about some of his stories from the road and uh, what we as writers can and should be doing and should not be doing. But first, we are checking in with our man in Spain, Andrew Hood. How are you, sir? Good to see you. Good to see you, Ben. I just got back from a long weekend with the in-laws. Uh, you can always imagine how much fun that was. <laughs> oh, much fun, much fun. So we're at a, at a shifting point in the season now. You know, it, it's uh, Wednesday as we're recording this. Thursday will be the introduction of the Tour de France route. Uh, but the, the World Tour season has just wrapped up with, the, with you know, Lombardia, concluding the the road season uh cyclocross has just started we just had the the, the first you know the, the three opening world cups are in the united states this year uh waterloo was the first last weekend today wednesday is the second night in fayetteville arkansas and then the third is in iowa city uh, so i thought this would be a good point to sort of reflect back on on what 2020 meant for for the road season and get get some of your takes as you have followed the the road season in and out um and it seems like the enios and i don't want to say the demise of enios but maybe the fading of of enios has been been a theme that you've covered is you know what is your sense of of how that team has shifted or the, the dynamics have shifted in in road cycling this year yeah, but it's been interesting to watch over the last couple of years. You know, I guess the big thing really this year, again, was uh, the COVID, you know, was a big factor across Europe. Um, things weren't nearly as bad as they were in 2020, of course, when everything was pushed back into the fall. Um, you know, even even earlier this month, we still had the kind of COVID hangover with Perio Bay being rescheduled. Finally, you know, first time since 2019, Perio Bay was a wet one. A wet one, indeed. And, you know, it was a good one. It was worth the wait on that one, wasn't it? Oh, it was an incredible race. Uh, incredible race. And, uh, you know, I mean, the great, the big takeaway really was that how cycling has gotten through this pandemic. And there's a sense of, you know, at least here in Europe, I mean, the vaccinations have been going quite well, you know, across, you know, the heartland of cycling, you know. Yeah, we saw, you know, it really at the world, you know, a few weeks ago, Ben, uh, you were there. You know, it was, it was almost like normal times again. I mean, there were, the restrictions were gone. There was no face masking when people were outside. 
And there was an estimated 1 million people on the side of the road. And that really was the first time in cycling, you know, since really 2019 that we've seen those kinds of huge crowds. So that's kind of some real positive news just in general about where the sport's going, what it's gone through, and where it's going to be getting back to. And I think going into next season, we'll still see some restrictions. We'll still see a few races impact. I mean, we've already seen uh, the Tour Down Under and the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race. Both of those have already been canceled in early 2022. But, you know, we'll see. I mean, I think going into next year, we should see almost, you know, quotes, unquotes, back to normality. The, might be some face masks and some social distancing, but I think we'll see fans back at the races. We'll see the teams mixing up with the public again. And I think we'll see bracing almost as normal. You know, who knows? I mean, I'm not a virologist. Or like that. <laughs> barring, barring another uh, Delta variant, you know, we might be back to normal next year. Sure. That's the most important. Yeah, fingers crossed. And it'll be good to get the the, the schedule back to normal. Although I I enjoyed uh, having things, like like you said, after the first wet Roubaix in nearly 20 years, arguably due to the fact that it was in the fall as opposed to April. But there there is something enjoyable about the the pomp and circumstance of the the annual calendar of you know Flanders coming in April followed you know one week later by Roubaix and there's the the schedule that we all know and love so I'm eager to get back to to that fingers crossed yes can we talk about Tade Pogaccio he's it just seems like he can win on command just for giggles like the Lombardia was was an incredible race to watch what what are you expecting from him next year yeah, but I think you hit the hit it on the head of the of the nail there when you say giggles because when you watch him race, uh, you really can sense that he's having fun. I mean, he's still a kid, and he's still only 22, 23 years old. You know, he's won uh, you know, he won two monuments this year, uh, Lombardia and Liège, and the Tour de France. You know, no one's done that since Marks. Yeah, um, people are comparing him to you know potentially setting some of these all-time milestones, you know, most wins, most monuments, most uh, grand tours. You know, we'll see if he stays healthy. But right now, um, he seems to be a rider who, you know, has this kind of uh, innate ability to not have any sort of stress affect him. But I guess that comes with youthful exuberance. Uh, when, when everything is in the future, nothing is in the, in the rearview mirror. There's no regrets. Sure. And, uh, you know, we saw him do what he did at Lombardia the other day. attacked 35 Ks to go. Dropped the entire peloton, jumped you know jumped out of that leaders group. Uh, Masnada just basically sucked his wheel all the way to the finish line. That was a great ride by Masnada to be able to catch on home roads, arguably an advantage there, but still a huge effort and daredevil skills to catch you know, on that descent. Oh, for sure, and uh, you know it just kind of just shows like like what Pogacar can do, man. He can just do everything, right? It's like uh, you know he he is kind of this. Uh, Pierre Sagan type rider, but of a grand tour ilk. You know, Sagan was the classic sprinter, points jersey guy mm-hmm. who could do everything. Now we're seeing the emergence of the same kind of multifaceted rider, but really at the grand tour level, which, you know, we haven't really seen that for a long time. We're seeing guys like Wild Van Aert and, you know, Vanderpool and Remco and maybe Pitcock, all these guys are doing these different kinds of things. But up to now, really, you know, the grand tour rider was still in that fold of, you know, everything's about the tour sacrifice the entire season, build build your team and your preparation around hitting a peak in July. And, you know, Chris Froome kind of followed that same template, even though Chris was very uh, successful in other races too, but, you know, he never won a monument. 
you know, he, everything was about the tour and the grand tours for, for Froome and for Sky for many years. And it's pretty cool to see for the sport to see Pogacar coming through and just crushing everybody. Absolutely. What sort of crushing do you expect to see next year? I mean, are we going to see Bernal rise to a, to a high level again or, or is he, is he second fiddle to, to Pogacar and, and where do you see Roglic figuring in? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Um, you know, we were at the Welta this year talking to uh, Bernal a few times. It kind of got a weird sense of ambivalence from him. In fact, I asked him straight up, you know, what do you expect to race against when you race against one-on-one against Pogacar? Because the last time they raced, 2020, that, of course, was when, you know, really it was Jumbo Visma. They kind of grounded him into the tarmac, and he pulled out of that of, of that tour, t- 2020, with a bad back. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's when, of course, you know, Pogacar won the last time trial. And then last year, Pogacar totally dominated. And, um, you know, so so Bernal was just real kind of like, oh, you know, we'll see. There's there's other races besides the tour. You know, maybe who knows next year, you know, he might do the Giro and I might do the Welta. You know, I'm not obsessing on Pogacar. And I think that was kind of his way of saying that he's afraid of racing against this guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, get sense, I get this sense that. He, I think it's a sense that, you know, especially if, if there's some lingering impacts with Bernal with his back, that Pogacar is just going to absolutely smother him in the tour next year. We'll see what the course looks like. It's on Thursday in Paris. You know, who knows? It might be a course maybe that's good for Bernal, but every course is good for Pogacar right now. <laughs> um, that's, that's the bad thing. And then for Roglic, I mean, he's really the only guy that I think can take it to Pogacar, right? I mean, he has the same skill set. He's a good time trialist. Probably a, maybe can be a better time trialist than Pogacar on his day. But of mm-hmm. course, you know, we've seen Pogacar do these great time trials as well. But he has that finishing speed. He has that ability to attack, that ability to go really deep with long distance attacks that Roglic can do and I think counter to Pogacar if he does that. So I see really it's going to be Pogacar versus Roglic, Yumbo Visma versus UAE with you know, Enios kind of coming in and trying to find their space behind those two teams. Should be lots of good stuff and more fireworks to come. We're looking forward to a great 2022. Again, the Tour de France route is being announced Thursday, so check in for all the details for that. But we will leave it there with you, Mr. Hood. Thanks for your time. All right. Thanks, Ben. We need to take a short break, but we will be right back with Bijou Thomas. The science of speed, Shimano's design philosophy for its latest road groups, is comprised of five elements, a new DI2 platform, a refined interface, the addition of Hyperglide Plus, a category redefining brake system, and a collection of new wheels. The result is a clean wireless cockpit, faster shifting, enhanced brake control, and quicker, more stable wheels. Top that with an easy to use eTube Project smartphone app, and connecting with your bike and enjoying the ride has never been better. Bijou Thomas, welcome to the Velo News Podcast. Nice to see you. Thank you, Ben Delaney. It's lovely to see you, sir. You look sharp today. Now, due to the miracle of audio recording, I've already given a bit of introduction, but let's give you a, a further introduction. Many of our good listeners know you and uh, your buddy Alan through the trilogy, not the Lord of the Rings, the other one, similar though, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the Feed Zone cookbooks. Uh, yes, and, yes. And have a, a basic understanding of your background as a chef running a Beecher's little curry shop, but also working with professional cyclists on teams and for individuals. And, uh, even like this weekend, uh, coming up, you're going to be cooking at the, the wedding. Yeah. I'm doing a little wedding party for some friends. 
uh, here in Aspen this weekend. It's going to be lovely. And those friends are? Um, Tom's and... Tom Scunch is how I say it. I say it quickly Scunch. because I, I usually mess it up. He's a lovely um, so, man, though. Tom's and Abby, who formerly Abby Mickey. So they um, they got married last year in Latvia. And Tom's is a huge fan of curry, Indian food. I mean, he always made a point when he was in Denver. His first and last stop was always the curry shop restaurants. And I think it started for him back when uh, he was with uh, the Hinkapi team. And those guys used to come through all the time. So started there somewhere. And to this day, it's just like his favorite restaurant. So he asked me two years ago if I do the food, and I said yes. And finally, it's time. So I'm just going up there Saturday. We're going to have a little party, uh, eat some foods, ride some bikes. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah. And every time I talk to you, there you've got stories like that. And I want to give more of these stories. But first, let's let's rewind the tape a little yes. bit and uh, tell us how you got started in both cooking and cycling. Because you were you were born in India, were there until age ten. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, moved to Lakewood? Yeah, yeah. My dad uh, was sponsored to go to college here, electrical engineering, and he's a Christian minister. So he was sponsored and brought over by Colorado Christian Academy, and then also uh, he was doing schooling. And so he, we already had set up home base in Colorado, um, which makes no sense because most Indians were coming from a really, you know, tropical part of the world where it's, you go from there to, you know, freezing cold and snow is not the first choice right. folks make. And the big Indian communities are all in really, really warm parts of the country here, whether it's a Houston, a Dallas, and of course, Chicago, where it's always balmy. Um, so <laughs> my dad came out in the early 70s, and this was definitely not a popular spot for Indians. And then uh, the rest of us all showed up in 1980 when I was 10 years old. I just gave away uh, my real age, folks. Um, anybody that's super good with calculators, you can figure that one out. So I got into bike racing back in high school. Yeah. And, and it was, so tell me about the, yeah, the merger of bike racing and cooking, because I'm familiar with like the last 10 years or so <laughs> of your life, but before that, I'm, I'm fuzzy on the, the in-between part. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So it turned out, and I've had this conversation with uh, quite a few people uh, that went on to have incredible pro careers in cycling. We sucked at team sports. Uh, we were awful at anything with the ball, and we sucked at everything else. Now, like everybody rides bikes, all the cool kids ride bikes, everyone's beautiful, everyone fast and smart and strong. Back in the 80s, there was just a bunch of weirdos that rode, you know, rode bikes and got into racing. Like, it was such a European thing. I associate with this, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's you a know, punk rock like, thing almost in America. I mean, you can open up any garage now and there's a $5,000 road bike in there. Um, back when we were kids, only one or two kids had road bikes. So, I had a paper out growing up uh, here in Denver. Uh, we were over in the Highlands neighborhood, 30th and Lowell, which is kind of a cool little hipster part of town now. Um, and I had a paper route too. My brothers had paper routes. And back then you went around on a little bicycle, uh, a single speed with coaster brakes, giant handlebars and big canvas bags hanging off the front that you stuffed a bunch of papers into. And then you'd get really good riding down the street and chucking them at people's doors and aiming for things and everything that you've seen in a movie. And oddly enough, yesterday we were riding up, uh, we, some hill, we came down to Chautauqua and then went through some neighborhood where it was super steep. And we'd already been out for like two hours. And I was zigzagging back and forth. And in my mind, it was like, this Doing is why it's... Boy. Yeah, this is the paper boy. And I was like, holy crap, I've actually done it as a paper boy too. Same. I was a paper boy. That was my first job. And I like to joke, I've been riding bikes and slinging words is my 
you know, excuse for your career ever since. And, See, you were yeah, doing it then, you're doing thanks, it now. Thanksgiving was the worst. It was like the heaviest uh, papers, you have to roll them up and rubber band them. And, do you remember, so my paper routes, I started in 83, 84. Do you remember when um, Sunday papers just got giant all of a sudden? Would they put all those ads and crap in there? And you had to like, you know, ride with a hundred of these bricks. Yeah, or like make two trips. It was terrible. It was awful. And then in big snowstorms, you still had to push your stupid bike around with these giant things. And another thing I recently realized. <laughs> and another thing. Somewhere in the 80s, somebody got smart with plastic bags that we used to put them in on rain days. And they just started putting papers in plastic bags every day. We never did that. We would just leave papers in people's yards. Oh, yeah. And the, 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 the sprinklers come on. Your oh, problem. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's not the most environmentally friendly to throw <laughs> a, a plastic bags on papers every time. But Yeah, so you kids is. these days, you know, you don't know how good you got it. Uh, not having to have paper routes. Going to find new customers. Chasing them <laughs> down for the $5 they owe you. <laughs> at the end of the month, every month, my dad would have to write a check to the paper company because I was short. He's like, you suck at this job. Yeah, making kids be their own bill collectors. <laughs> Child labor is horrible. Uh, yeah, so that's where it started. I was um, pretty strong paper boy. I had really good, you know, paper boy bike skills. <laughs> and I'd go do uh, bike rides with some of the road riders that went to Alameda High School where I grew up in Lakewood. Um, and every now and then I'd, you know, take off on a little sprint or whatever. And in my mind, I thought I was super good. And that's kind of how it started. And I started working restaurants at the same time, 1985, got a job washing dishes and making toast for 300 people at a time at a nursing home uh, across the street from the high school. It's a lot of toast. It is a lot of toast, but I got really fast and really super efficient. Uh, see, the key isn't putting the toast in the toaster. It's, you know, the toast has to come out and has to get buttered. See, that's where... Uh, and uh, That's where you get them. Huh? <laughs> that's where you get them. That's where you pick up the skills, mad toast buttering skills. Uh, and right about then, you know, I just started learning how to, you know, make large volumes of food, starting with toast. And the two kind of just went together after that bikes and food. And then connecting with pro riders. What was the, what was the tipping point there from slinging 300 pieces of toast to, you know, cooking for bike riders at uh, spots all over the globe? Well, interestingly, uh, I grew up then, I don't know if you remember in the eighties, we would get tiny, tiny glimpses of bike racing in the U S every now and then. Excuse me. Tiny glimpses every now and then. And one of the ones I do vividly recall was um, late 80s, maybe 86, 87, when LeMond was racing. There was a tiny little clip at one point that showed his chef. Uh, shoot, I can't remember the dude's name. Now. He was a big Belgian dude. Um, I remember seeing a little clip of him running off of a team bus in shorts and an apron and a white T-shirt like with a tray of food or something and then running right back on. And it was just a fraction of a second of seeing him. Uh, Willie, Chef Willie, that was his name, I think. And that just stuck in my head my whole life. I was like, man, that looks so cool. He gets to be around bike racers. He's cooking food and he's badass. He's like this big, burly, manly man with shorts on and apron. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do that someday. <laughs> uh, so it started there. And uh, for those of you that grew up in Denver back in the eighties, you know, we had a handful of guys come through that all went on to do amazing things in the sport. And I don't think anybody back in the eighties growing up thought we could ever make a living in cycling, right? You race bikes, then you went and got a job. Right. Um, but Jonathan Otters, you know, he was a junior. He was, I think he's a, still is a year and a half, two years younger than me. He was racing locally. Uh, Robin Thurston and I were on the same uh, little club together back then here in Denver. 
um, my first day, freshman day in college, registering for my dorm, the guy in front of me had shaved legs. So I said hi to him. I was like, dude, you race bikes? He goes, yeah. And that was Dirk Friel, who started Training Peaks, and his dad is Joe Friel of all the Training Bible, or uh, Training Bibles, right? The training Bible, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Training Bible books. So there was always a culture of really, really strong athletes and people to look up to and people to be like, oh, man, those guys are amazing, and we get to be friends, which is pretty cool. First pro cyclist that you were paid to cook for? First pro cyclist I was paid to cook for, uh, it's kind of a longer answer. So when JV, Jonathan Vodders, was starting the club, um, which is now EF Education, back in the day he was here in Denver as um, 5280, 5280, TIA Cref, uh, Chipotle was in there for a while. And then eventually when, um, and Alan worked on this project, which led to Garmin making bike computers that were GPS enabled. That was something Alan Lim worked on. And part of the deal was that they would sponsor the team. So they came on to sponsor the team. And at the time, whenever JV would have potential sponsors or potential supporters of the team um, over to the house, he would ask me to come and cook dinner. So I got to be around these guys a lot. And I got to support a lot of the early stages of you know, what JV was up to, I met Alan during that, and Alan and I were instantly friends. Um, and then I want to say, you know, the first actual pro cyclist I was paid to cook for, you may have heard of the guy, but it was somebody named Lance Armstrong. Heard this name. Yeah. So he was the first person that I was paid to cook for uh, individually. And that was an amazing, you know, experience. And how, how similar or dissimilar was that to your original vision of, of Willie running in and out of team trucks with a, a pool of hot food? <laughs> um, my experience, uh, I was kind of spoiled in that I got to work with Lance and I, I think he's, you know, incredibly interesting, entertaining, uh, a really cool dude. Uh, obviously, people are highly split on opinions, whatever that is. But he's one of the most interesting people I'd ever been able to be around and definitely work with. Uh, for a very short amount of time while he was kind of uh, doing more training in the U.S., in Hawaii, uh, here, and um, it was great. So in my mind, my version of it turned out to be better than what I saw Willie doing in that it was usually just me with just a handful of riders and we got to really spend time together. And it was less about, hey, Cook, go make us lunch and more about, okay, now you're part of the squad. You get to hang out with us. We're all going to spend time together. We're all going to you know, be in this little... Uh, you know, camping trip together for a few weeks or a few days, whatever it is. In in those trips or time together, how much was, how much of it was, you know, science-based nutrition? You know, there's much has been made at least years ago about, you know, Lance measuring his pasta down to the nth degree and how much was just about making delicious food that you knew had the, the basic ingredients and, yeah. and how much of that just goes into your everyday cooking of like thinking about what the nutritional benefit is versus, hey, this is delicious and I'm going to make this because that's what's on my mind this week. Yeah, I've thought about that. A lot. Uh, the first part of the answer is none of it was nutritionist based. Um, there was no nutritionist dietitian specifically, um, you know, in my ear ever talking about anything, especially not, you know, calorie counts, macros, micros, nothing. When Lance was going through recovery after cancer treatments and trying to come back, there was a long period where he was, you know, there's that whole story of him and Bob Roll being camped out in the hills somewhere. And measuring everything that he ate. And it worked for him because, I mean, first, you've got to have your brain wired like Lance in order to make that work. Like he's, you know, you know, and he's incredibly, incredibly focused and motivated when he wants to be. And I've been fortunate to work with a lot of really mature um, professional 
cyclists uh, who know what they need. And they would mm-hmm. be the ones to tell me what they need or don't need. And my job was just to make it taste delicious and make sure that there was enough of it at the right time. So, Which can be a challenge. It is always a challenge. On the road into foreign languages, you don't know when the shops are open, you don't know if you can get the right ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And people talk about, you know, oh my God, France is so great. It is great, but try trying to find a bag of ice during the Tour de France, anywhere in France, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't exist. Uh, so forget about everything else. And so the chefs that you see now, these, you know, now everybody's got a team chef. The team chefs are pulling around mobile kitchens in Europe. They have massive setups. Um, I stress out just thinking about how much maneuvering and gymnastics those guys, those women have to do to pull it off day after day after day. And first and foremost, the concern is the athletes cannot get sick from the food. So food safety is such a concern and nobody else can touch the food. There can't be any contamination. I mean, it is mind blowing. If you, so if that means if every day all they eat is toast and butter and that's the safest thing, that's all they're going to eat. You cannot take a chance on somebody's career by giving them a bad meal, right? Sure. And timing's part of it too. I remember Sean Kelly at the tour of Ireland. Yelling at these poor waitresses who the, the restaurant was completely overwhelmed by multiple teams coming in and the crowds coming in. And these young riders have been sitting there for like an hour just watching them bonk at the table. Like, <laughs> yeah. To your point of. Yeah, you can't do it. That's where. This is vital. Eventually, when all the teams started bringing on team chefs, they were able to really control that entire environment, plus the whole experience, plus, you know, able to feed multiple dietary needs all from the same kitchen. And so you've got incredibly talented chefs that are on the road cooking out of trucks and trailers now um, in the European Peloton. Now, you said you've had the privilege of working with many riders who know exactly what they need and or want. Yeah. How about some on the other end of the spectrum? What, what are some of the bigger mistakes you've seen riders make with food? I mean, not necessarily a professional rider, but just, you know, like a uh, chucklehead like myself. Of, <laughs> Come on, like, sir, ha- please. <laughs> you know, having poor ideas about, you know... Whatever it may be, like drinking a 40-ounce of beer right after a mm. six-hour ride. Instead Do you of remember that movie, uh, Pro, with uh, Chris uh, uh, Horner was in it, where he's in there eating a cheeseburger, sitting on the curb eating a cheeseburger before he goes out and crushes? It was yes. must have been Super Week or something like that, where he was just like badass. He could eat anything yes. and just go on kill it. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and Chris has similar stories like being at the Volta and the tour and starting to fall apart in the middle of the third week and then, yeah, having pizza and ice cream. And, and it works. And then he's good to go. <laughs> I think, so to the first part, I've been incredibly blessed in that I've only worked with pros um, other than friends of mine and folks that, you know, come through and stay at my house or whatever that I cook for. Otherwise, as far as getting paid to work, I've only ever worked with, you know, actual pros at either the middle, the beginning to the middle portion of their careers. So I've always been able to work with folks that come from years and years and years of discipline and coaching and training and tons of input into their, you know, physical well-being. Well, maybe not well-being, but into their physical prowess, um, being really fast on a bike. So I've always been able to be around folks that already knew what they were doing, and I just needed to help them, you know, fine-tune it a little bit here and there on the food side. As far as mistakes that I see people making, one is, and I do it myself, because you know, I'm a big boy, as you can see. We're sitting across from each other. <laughs> I'm, uh, and as somebody who's surrounded by food all the time and people wanting to cook for me or that I cook for, there's never a shortage of food. So I struggle with maintaining a healthy body weight and also not being embarrassed to see myself in the mirror. Uh, 
and being reasonably decent on a bike. So there's always a struggle of, man, I could lose 20 more pounds. I would feel so much better on a bike. But then I'm like, yeah, but do I want to work that hard at this point in my life to lose 20 pounds? And the one thing is that I've discovered over the years is when I ride, I typically don't eat enough. And I see that with a lot of, you know, beginners in our sport, which is you don't eat enough or you're trying to lose weight the day before a race or you're skipping on meals the morning of the race because you think that's going to, you know, that is really awful advice. And it's mostly us just playing mind games with ourselves. Uh, okay, well, I, I can, I'm going to make up for eight months of poor training by <laughs> skipping a couple of meals this week yeah. of the race. Uh, so the biggest mistakes I see are not eating enough or not eating at the right point of the week or the point of the life cycle of your particular um, goals and races. And then you got to make the food taste good, um, and which means it's got to taste good to you, regardless of what the recipe says or what you're you know, you think it needs to be, um, it needs to taste good so that you get enough calories and the right kind of calories or from the right sources of food that you need. So what are your, some of your favorite on the bike snacks? Um, believe it or not, um, I have a hard time regulating, um, blood sugar. So, and I've been using the super sapiens, the monitor, uh, for the last six months, which is mind blowing how much information I was able to get on my own body. Isn't that crazy? Like, we're 40, I'm you know, 50 years old, 51. Uh, none of us know what the hell we're doing with our bodies. We're just kind of winging it every day. And then every now and then somebody will tell you something like, oh, I should try that. Uh, yeah, I should maybe do this. You know, none of us came with the manual, so we're kind of on our own to figure it out. And having little devices and tools and things that kind of help us calibrate and figure. Uh, so using the Super Sapiens thing, I was really able to dial in the foods that don't spike my blood sugar. Hmm. And was able to find these awesome little oat bar things called heavenly hunks, which <laughs> they're amazing because I can eat them uh, on the bike, a couple of bites, and they my blood sugar doesn't spike. Maybe it's because there's a fair amount of fiber and fat in it from chocolate chips and the oats, um, and my blood sh you know sugar doesn't spike. Therefore, I have a good consistent level of energy when I'm riding. Uh, that's really it. I, I try to avoid a lot of sugar and stuff when I'm riding. Um, but back to the old days and things that still work are like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, you know, basic, yep. basic things for me. How about when you get off the bike? Getting off the bike, uh, this is where I don't do any recovery things. I'm really not doing those sort of efforts where I have to worry about recovery, you know, shakes or, you know, what is it the weightlifter dudes take now? They do like pre things that are just You're they can, asking the wrong guy. Basically, can give you a heart attack uh, if you don't like start lifting shit right away. You know, ah, I got to go lift weights. Yeah, so strong. That sounds terrible. Pre, dang it, there's like a term for it. But um, post for me is usually fairly simple. As soon as I get off, if it's been a long day, which for me is three hours is a long day. If I'm on for three hours, I will make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich as soon as I get off the bike um, or just peanut butter. And simple sugar, protein. Yeah, a little bit of fat, a little protein, a little simple carbs to get the glycogen stores um, back up, topped off, as it were. And then also to take that craving off um, to where you're not just gorging yourself later. You know, so if you're managing, I'm 190 pounds on a normal day. Um, I'd like to not be 190. And the thing is, look at me. We look like very normal look Americans. Great. Oh, thanks, you buddy. look great. It's the hair. It hides everything else. It hides my belly. Um but 190 pounds, you know, five foot ten in heels, um, which it's a very normal looking American body size. And 
I feel pretty strong on a bike these days, all those things, but I'm still like, man, I could lo- drop 25 pounds. Be amazing. And one key to that is not gorging, not eating food late at night, you know, like stupid habits that we all fall into when we're going through shit or when we're sad or whatever it is. Sure. And one way to curb that is to eat right off you right after you get off a bike, have something so that you're not gorging a bunch of food later and making, you know, worse choices and bigger mistakes later. Um, tell me more about the super sapiens glucose yeah. monitor. Uh, how often are you looking at that? Is that in real time as you're riding, monitoring what yeah, your so, blood sugar is doing? Or is that like when you get home, you make a note of like, I ate four handsome hunks and my blood sugar was perfect. <laughs> no, it's, um, it's amazing. I, they're still going through trials um, to get it approved for public usage soon. Um, and they're testing it primarily on the athlete population and folks that are you know, kind of surrounding athlete population. And yeah, but I want to know what you do with it, not what... Yeah, what yeah. So doing. it pairs up to the app. So I'm, I'm able to see the app all the time when I'm wearing it. Um, and usually the biggest single indicator was to see how long it takes something that you eat to have an effect on your blood, whether good, bad, whatever it is, right? Because I think a lot of us don't realize that you eat something and depending on your own metabolism, 10, 15, 20 minutes later, your blood sugar adjust to whatever you ate. And knowing that was important because I think a lot of us think, okay, I can eat this now and then I'll be able to go for a ride in 20 minutes and we end up taking a nap instead because you ate something and you have a massive crash because you timed it wrong versus you could eat the same thing as soon as you're moving and you'll notice that your blood sugar doesn't spike, your absorption rate's different. So having the ability to understand when to time what you're eating is incredible. Mm. Like knowing that, okay, I can eat something now, but that means I'm not going to ride for two hours. I need to eat a big meal, something substantial that I'm going to ride in two hours, or I'm going to eat and get on my bike within the next five minutes um, as my blood sugar is adjusting. So being able to kind of understand that and then from there to figure out what foods actually work best for you. And there is no bad food. It's just what time of the day do you want to eat specific things and certain things or what point in the week do you want to eat? Cake isn't bad. Um, Dessert isn't bad if you have it after a dinner of a good amount of fiber and fat and protein so that, you know, your blood sugar doesn't go all nuts versus just eating cake right now. Having a donut right now, we'd be Mm. two insane people. (laughs) But if you had a donut after a great big salad and a steak, you probably wouldn't have the same effect. So learning that about myself has been amazing. It's just at this point in my life to learn that one little thing in my 50s is mind-blowing. Like the amount of information we don't have about our own bodies is, you know, amazing that most of us have all of our limbs to begin with, you know. How about some helpful tips for riders on the before the ride? And maybe you can put this as a two-part question. Yeah, what, what do you recommend people eat before a big ride? Yeah. Part one. And then part two, can you think of some stories of things gone horribly awry? <laughs> I can think of some meals I've had. Like I like to put, you know, being a New Mexican guy, I like to put chili on everything. Man. Which tastes delicious, but yeah. I remember at least one race, you know, having <laughs> having huevos just swimming in red chili, mm. and uh, th- that wasn't wasn't the best idea, idea later on. Yeah, definitely the avoiding things that are spicy or cause heartburn um, is important, and you know, eating the day of is great, but if you have a normal, healthy, balanced diet for the weeks leading up to it, much like having a normal, healthy relationship to sleep for the many months leading up to big events or whatever, or just in life in general, you're going to perform better, right? Like you think about all the times we tried to force ourselves to perform either at work or on a bike or whatever when we hadn't been sleeping well. 
you know, and you know, it sucks right away. You can feel it in your legs as soon as you start turning. And food and diet is really no different. Finding foods that work for you specifically um, and making sure that you have a healthy relationship with that food and are eating enough on a regular basis. Then on the day of the event, it's no different. You know, you're just still doing the thing you're going to be doing anyway. What we don't want to do is throw in last minute surprises of, oh, okay, I heard this thing is great. I'm going to eat a bunch of this junk the night before a big race or whatever, or the morning of, and it's going to, it's not going to work. Right. And then another big one that people don't understand is eating all these hyper concentrated foods, whether they're gels or the little blocks or whatever. If you look at the actual instructions on them, they take a tremendous amount of water to dilute and so that your body can actually absorb it. So you'll see a lot of folks at their first triathlons, their first um, bike races where they're just chugging gel after gel after gel. And they're going to have awful stomach issues immediately during the race post or you got to go stop in the middle of and run in the woods. You know, it's not a healthy way to uh, consume calories um, unless you're able to chug a tremendous amount of water to make sure that it's all absorbed, which is helpful. Um, yeah. So having just a normal, healthy relationship to food and figuring that out and also understanding that no two of us can really function at the same level off of one exact same diet. We're all wired differently. We all come from, you know, completely different genetic makeups where we're kind of predisposed to certain foods that work with us and some that don't. You know, I know guys that can eat bread and bagels and pasta 24 hours a day and they're skinny as a rail and they're fast and fit and happy all the time, you know? And then there's other guys like me, like if I have a piece of bread right now, I'm going to lay down on the floor and go to sleep. <laughs> it's just, but that's okay. We just got to pay attention to our own bodies and see what does and what doesn't work. And then, you know, make the decision to lean into the things that work for you. Um, but definitely, don't do anything completely new and different the day of or the night before the race. And, um, yeah. Did I answer any of the questions? Yeah. Yeah. Except maybe like, you know, but the second uh, half, leaving off the, a horror story or two. Oh, a horror story or two. I don't really have horror stories. Just that the people you're with, they're so well shepherded that you keep them from, yeah, from like, harm and danger. I mean, I would literally go quit my job the day, like, Immediately after, if somebody that I was working with got sick or something poor and bad happened, oh my God, I'd be so embarrassed. Well, I'm not saying like something that you caused per se, but just something that you were aware of, like seeing someone at a <laughs> at a, an event eating you know, 14 cakes before a, mm. before a 10K foot race or something like that. Dang. This. Yeah, no. I mean, it's not coming to me. Sorry. I got to pay better attention, man. Right. I got to pay attention to tragedies as they happen. <laughs> That's what you're saying. Dang now, one, one thing I very much appreciated about your three books is how they're easy enough for a chucklehead like me yeah it's it's approachable you know i find as my wife can sadly attest i'm a terrible cook <laughs> and i think some of that is like being intimidated that there are chefs people like yourself with tons of professional experience who can do magic in the kitchen and then there's the rest of us who should just go across the street and buy a burrito <laughs> but you know having to, it broken down pretty simply and a company with beautiful photos like oh i, I can actually do that and, yeah believe it or not um do you remember the book it was called, it was Eddie B's big training book that was out in the 80s. It was called the Training Bible. No, well, that's, uh, no, that's real. It was something, it was a giant book that Eddie Borchewitz put out in the 1980s. He was the Polish guy who came over and was a trainer to the U.S. national team back in the day. And I remember a line that he put in there, um, which was, uh, if you want to be fast, eat fast things. Maybe try some horse meat. <laughs> <laughs> 
So eat a greyhound. <laughs> but he was being dead serious. So I mean, as kids, we're like, dude, where do we get horse meat? That's gonna make us fast. <laughs> and then, but you know, and then one of the other favorite quotes out of that book to this day is, and it's stuck in my head, is like, when you start going up a hill, you shift into harder gears, not into easier gears. You know, like little things like that, that back then, you know, who, who, was, who had a coach? Nobody had a coach. And nobody had a dietitian. Nobody had a nutritionist. Um, the sports nutrition books in the 80s, and even into most of the 90s, were just not meant for end users. They weren't really meant for athletes. For the most part, the books were written from one science person to another science person. So it was almost like the sports nutrition books were written by dietitians and nutritionists for coaches to read and not necessarily to inspire anybody to go and cook their own food, which they're going to eat. And that was always a really motivating factor for me when I started thinking about recipes and food right away uh, early on. Um, I wanted to make sure that there was always a photo attached to the thing, the recipe. And then two, that the recipe and the steps were so simple that a high school kid can make it. Um, you know, those books aren't about how cool I am or how great of a chef, you know, whoever is. It's about influencing people in their own lives and to make better food decisions and at least learn one or two skills that they can grow on. You know, if, if you just learn how to make one dish and it comes out reasonably okay, you're going to cook again. You're going to make something else. And that turns into one of the few skills all of us really need throughout our own lives, right? Think of all the times as an adult. You're an adult man now. You know, think Probably. of all the times. <laughs> think of all the times you've had to cook. And that's one of those skills that I mean, of course, now with all the TikTok videos, everyone's an amazing cook. But to actually have skills as a young person that you can grow with or as a young adult that you can learn, um, you got to start somewhere. And that was really the motivating factor behind the Feeds on Cookbooks. And I remember sitting with Renee when we first started talking about it. And Renee is um, amazing. She was my editor on all the books and life coach. Um, <laughs> Renee had to <laughs> keep me from breaking down throughout all three books. I'll tell you, writing cookbooks is definitely, definitely a severe challenge. Um, <laughs> so one of the things I said to her from our very, very first meeting was that we got to make sure there's a picture on every page. Because if you look at sports nutrition books in the 80s, 90s, even before the Feed Zone books, uh, not a lot of pictures. There was a picture here and there, then there was a lot of text, and they would put illustrations in that looked like food, but you know it was a little too cutesy. Um, and we really, from day one, if you every one of the recipes, there's a picture right next to it. And that was really important. And I cooked all of the food and uh, in the photo shoot. So whatever picture you're looking at, that is the final recipe. So... Food books, typically, somebody comes up with a concept, they ship it off to a recipe farm where they put together a bunch of recipes, then it gets shipped to somewhere else where somebody photographs it and styles it and does all that. Ours, it was me, it was Alan, it was our photographers, it was Renee. We're all in a room together, and we wrote all the recipes. Everybody at Velo Press would get to take a handful of recipes home and test them. Um, and then we would make them. So whatever picture you're looking at is the actual recipe. Yeah, it's great stuff. And that's how I pick the foods, so, you know, flip through and yeah. that, that looks yummy. And none of it that. is particularly fancy, fancy and or complicated for sure. And interestingly, I'm doing a series now with uh, Vegetarian Times. Are we yes. allowed to talk about other uh, magazines? Yes, absolutely. This is, we're all part of the, the same outside family now. <laughs> Am I going to get fired from Velo Press, Velo News for talking about Vegetarian Times? Um, so for the folks at home who don't know, uh, I'm now at Outside where I get to work with a bunch of magazines and do food things. 
And one of the really cool projects that we've been doing at Vegetarian Times is coming up with vegetarian and vegan food where if you don't have really good grocery stores nearby, where you can go feed a family of four for under 15 bucks with the cleanest possible food. So they send me a different list of stores every week. So it's 7-Eleven, it's Dollar Tree, and I have to buy the entire dinner there for wow. under 15 bucks. Nice. And The Bijou Challenge. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I've spent most of my life cooking that way, so it's interesting. But then you think about, all right, so you can take all this food, but then if you come home and you have some really complex, convoluted recipes and need all this equipment and need this and need that, it ain't going to work. So all of the feed zone recipes are built out that same way. I mean, it's, you know, just a handful of ingredients, two or three steps. None of it's cooked with fancy equipment. Um you know, they were all done in my apartments when we did the photo shoots, you know, like crappy apartment, electric stove, one blender, you know. Real world situations. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. So, yeah. So speaking of real world situations and TikTok videos and Bijou challenges, one thing we are rolling out on VeloNews now is uh, pro riders challenging Bijou in, in various culinary ways. And if you want to get in on that action, first of all, go go check out these videos on our socials and send Bijou a challenge of your own. And if it's uh, if it's up to snuff, he, he, he will accept your challenge. Um, I'm seeing Christian Vandeveld later today. He's uh, here in Boulder. And one time he was staying in Boulder and the power went out and we had like 25 pounds of beef in the freezer, ground beef for some reason. What are you doing with 25 pounds of beef? I have no idea. Beef? Alan had it in his freezer for some reason. And the electricity went out. So me, Christian, and Alan, we made 25 pounds of meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> we made 25 pounds of meatballs. And we ate meatballs for every meal for the rest of the week while he was training for some race. This would have been like 2012, 2013. And Good Lord. Uh, I remember that all the time. So he's going to challenge me to do that again. But yes, if you're at home, um, which you're probably at home, uh, if you're at home and if you have a challenge for me or for Ben for that matter, let's get Ben in the kitchen. Um, <laughs> um, give me something fun, something interesting. If it sucks, I'm going to put it in a blender anyway, so it doesn't matter. Uh, everything eventually ends up in the blender, so it's all good. And one more outside plug, uh, listeners, as you may know, if you join Outside Plus, which you should, you get two free books as part of your membership. And the Feed Zone books are certainly far away, some of our most popular books. So that's a, a great way to get in on that action is signing up for Outside Plus and getting some Feed Zone cookbooks. And I agree. Thus, I, yeah, thus ends the end of my Feed Zone Outside Plus plug. Thanks, buddy. Outside <laughs> Plus is fantastic. Um, and... We're working on a lot, a lot of cool things with, um, I'm really amazing being able to be here in this time with the whole outside group. I get to do super cool things with the cycling tips group with Brad at Peloton. Um, I think Peloton, I'm in the print issue, this current one. We did a little story about me cooking in parking lots. Yeah. <laughs> I've built a career of cooking in random parking lots, which is fantastic. Um, and then I get to work with the folks at Pink Bike and all the different brands that are all in our universe of bicycles. And it's amazing that I get to just do the thing that I do, which is make snacks for people. Yeah. And it's awesome for those of us inside, outside that we can show up and, uh, right. Yeah. 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 If you work it outside, by the way, too, you just come upstairs to the kitchen and there's always <laughs> snacks in the fridge. Uh, cause I'm, I made a big old turkey yesterday. I don't know if you saw that. I did not. <laughs> It's October, so I wanted to see a couple different takes on brining and cooking a turkey, which we're going to share with the world. I'm going to go upstairs and check this out. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it's fantastic. I put a little barbecue sauce on there. It's pretty good. 
Super well, good. Thanks for making the time. Bijou, I learned, learned some stuff and uh, appreciate learning some more now that you're inside outside with us. Yeah, buddy. Thank you, Ben. And that does it for us this week's folks. Thanks for listening, and we'll check you next time on the Vellingers Podcast. <laughs>